Welcome to the Spirituality Out Loud podcast, where you'll hear real-life stories of people's unique spiritual journeys in their own words from their own viewpoints. Hosted by Leslie Seidel, relationship expert and spiritual mentor, who specializes in working with people on their relationships, from their romantic life to their work life and just plain life. Here's Leslie. Hi, everyone. This week, I get the honor and privilege of talking to Molly Gordon. Molly is such an interesting conversation. She has been searching for the meaning of life for as long as she can remember. And today, she's a coach, a mentor coach, a coach trainer. She sees coaching as an expression of individual and collective evolution. And she is a champion for dogma free spiritual principles that under pin coaching and what she calls the source code for human effectiveness. She was a cradle Catholic and from about the age of seven to 14 wanted to be a cloistered nun. Her honest and self-aware conversation with me this week was such an honor to get to listen to and I can't wait to share it with you guys. So she has amazing scope of influences and her wonderful path from where she started to where she is now. So please enjoy. Here's Molly. Hi, Molly. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Leslie. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So we just dive right in, which, and I know a little piece of your story. So Let's start at the beginning, which is when you what what religion and or spirituality were you raised with, and what was your relationship to that growing up? Yeah, I feel really sweet about this these days. I was a cradle Catholic, the oldest of eight kids, um, and I went to Catholic school uh, every year that it was available. My dad was in the military, and it wasn't available when I was in fifth and sixth grade. Uh, but every other year through high school, as a very, very small girl, I, you know, like five, certainly five years old, um, I felt I had an intimate and rich relationship with God. God was my bud. I was down with that. And I remember in first grade, um, I think when this happened, I was still five years old because my birthday's in October. So I had one of those... It was a young first grader. And we were learning the Baltimore Catechism, the basic responses. And uh, actually, it was even before that, the nun tried to explain in, uh, original sin to us. That just didn't strike me as, it didn't make sense. And I found it very sad. Because up until that day, it didn't enter my mind that I could through no fault of my own, be alienated from God, which didn't make any sense. And it didn't make sense to me for all the other little boys and girls. Another thing that didn't make any sense was, oh, so you go to hell if you're not baptized. Eh. <laughs> the God I experienced didn't play that way. So describe the original sin just to be clear. Yeah. Well, the way the nun explained it to us, as I recall, was original sin is, a, and she's talking to five and six-year-olds, right? Original sin is like a, a stain on a diaper that you can wash it and wash it and wash it, but the diaper's never really white again. Mm. And by the time I was in first grade, I had three little brothers and sisters, and I knew from stained diapers. <laughs> and that image struck me. I was brokenhearted. 
And what did it come from? What did the broken heart come from? No, no. The I mean, what did the? How did she describe where it came from? Did it come from the Adam? Oh, and did it come from what? I'm sorry. Adam and Eve. Yes, yes. It was part of that original Garden of Eden story, mm-hmm. and that from that moment, every child born was born with the stain of original sin. Okay. So we got it in the context of that story, uh-huh. and I don't know that because I don't remember any. Didn't really have. A problem with the story mm-hmm. felt bad for Adam and Eve, but I didn't. That didn't um, make me sad or afraid or alienated. But the idea of original sin, with the way she described it, I've since heard it described in other ways, as that dirty diaper. It just broke me, my heart. I wanted to be a brand new white diaper for God. Mm. And you felt before that that you were. And I felt before that that I was, and I understood that I could do bad things and would need to clean up after myself, but that was not a stain on the diaper of me. Yeah. So I, I guess I just share that because that was one of my earliest memories of how, of, it's an odd way to talk about it, but my positive relationship to God. Because mm-hmm. that violated that sense of the positive relationship. And the same year, I don't know if it was before or after, uh, we were in the Baltimore Catechism for this one, and there's a It's a call and response sort of catechism. You know, who made the world? God made the world. And so we're giving our unison responses. And Sister Mary Thomas said, well, now did God make that chair? And my classmates are all kind of puzzled. Like, well, obviously not. What's wrong with this picture? And I said, yes, yes, obviously God made the chair. And she said, really? And I said, yeah, God made the tree. God made the carpenter. God made the factory. I got no problem with God made the chair. I mean, so th- I felt that level of it all made sense to me. And I was a devout Catholic until about until hormones happened. <laughs> well, I know this piece of information, not only a devout Catholic, but you wanted. I wanted to be a cloistered nun. And so not only a nun, but a cloistered nun. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to totally give my life over to Christ. Uh, I wanted in the most extreme and complete way. Yeah. I wanted, he, that, I wanted that to be a done deal. And that looked like the way for that to be a done deal. Okay. And so then what happened? Well, you know, I, I've joked about it since it happening that it was hormones and boys. And I really think that's actually pretty close to the truth. I got to be a teenager. I think my world got bigger, so the the options got bigger. I think that my childhood conception of what it meant to be one with God or as close to God as possible got shaken up, and at this point, I'm I'm making up in a retrograde way what was going on for me, but Mm -hmm. it makes sense to me that my conviction that that was possible, useful, and the only way to do that thing mm-hmm. got shaken up. And at the same time, other things came into my life. And I'm really to this day tremendously grace, grateful that I didn't experience that as a, uh, that shift as painful or uh, cognitively dissonant at all. It just, yeah, no, not so much. <laughs> Maybe not so much the Carmelites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, um, 
what happened with your spirituality? So you decided to not be a nun, but you were still, were you still a devout Catholic? Like, so yeah. it be your career choice. Right. I was devout-ish through the rest of high school. This was, I, I graduated in 1971, 1972, spring of 1972. And so this was the age of birth control pill, and, you know, which came out in the 60s, and my mom was actually on the pill for a year or two. So I was aware of it and the controversy that the church and sex and were just diametrically opposed. And that wasn't working for me. <laughs> it just wasn't working for me. And my, my sense of integrity at the time wasn't flexible enough for me to be in the church and still making out with boys or a boy or a couple years later getting on the pill my sense of integrity couldn't encompass going to mass on sunday and going out with my boyfriend on saturday night so i just didn't have that flexibility in my moral scheme yeah so you were either going to be a hundred percent catholic and follow all of the tenets that yep or i was not And so I drifted away from the church. Uh, I probably went most Sundays uh, just because I was still living at home and it was the expected thing. But as soon as I left home at 18, actually at 17, I stopped going to church. But the, the traditions, the rituals, the prayers, the language, the sense of that childhood experience are still very alive in me. And I still, uh, my, my concept of what God is and what God wants uh, has shifted wildly over the years, has evolved, and yet it includes all of that. So today I'll be taking a walk and I'll find myself saying Hail Marys. Mm. It's not, it's just, just like I might find myself if I'm talking baby talk to a baby or uh, petting my cat or picking flowers. I just, so I'm suddenly I'm saying Hail Marys. It doesn't even feel intentional. It's just a spontaneous thing. I've tried returning to mass a couple of times in my adulthood. It just didn't take. There, there was a cognitive dissonance for me. Um, and part of it, I think, is just my own personality and maybe some ways I am about being in community. I've got a, a habit of being a loner that I'm not sure is a great habit. I, I wasn't comfortable in the church community. The meaning behind it is just rich as, as ever. It just means something bigger and different than it did to me. So did you go seeking in a spiritual way once this became, once Catholicism wasn't working for you? I did, but it didn't look like looking for a religion or something. I continued and all my life read spiritual, including Catholic authors and novels and poetry and philosophy. Um, In my 20s, when I went back to school, I chose a Catholic university. That that Catholic academic vibe was really home base for me academically. I liked that. Um, I spent, uh, a lot of time from, I did a lot of drinking and drugging through my twenties, mm. got sober at 30 and I 
found the understanding of a higher power was just really easy for me to accept. I, I felt like I had an ongoing relationship with God. It was sometimes a troubled on my side relationship in that I carried a lot of confusion, guilt, shame, um, maybe even resentment about what the kind of God I'd been sold. Mm. But that never actually impinged or broke that fundamental relationship I felt as a little girl. Mm. So that relationship has been constant through my life. How I experienced that relationship and how much noise I experienced around it, that has been all over the map. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I really uh, appreciate that idea. You know, um, I, my son just got diagnosed with autism and that was really hard for my family. Mm-hmm. And I got really mad. Mm-hmm. I thought, mm-hmm. super, like, how dare you? And this little child and why not me or, you know, on and on, big argument. And one of the things I realized that I thought was so interesting today versus 10 years, 20 years, 30 or whatever ago was the idea that I was mad. I am, you know, still maybe continue to be sometimes, Yeah. but I was doing that anger in relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what I just heard you saying. Like still in the relationship, it may get messy. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm married. Sometimes that's messy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I was still in that relationship. I sometimes I was uh, kind of hiding away from it, sometimes, but it was never not there. Yeah, never not there. So, what does it look like today? Like, so did you? I mean, so you got sober, and and that if you were in a twelve step program, asked you to find some relationship mm-hmm. power, and so did you? Did you go seeking uh, any particular path? It doesn't sound like that, but but you were constantly. I was reading and exploring all kinds of paths. I mean, I read, I can't even remember when some of these happened, but I, I read in Buddhism, uh, you know, what comes to mind is even Jungian psychology to me as a deeply spiritual dimension. I, I was very much into that. Uh, the spirituality of 12-step of uh, work, I tried at some point to go back to mass. Uh, I may even have tried that a few times. And I certainly, I, I have been to mass on and off over my lifetime just because the, you know, for a friend's wedding or, and I always found it profoundly moving when it was just a one-off. It's when I entered into a specific congregation and went every week and, uh, found that I just couldn't buy what was being sold from the pulpit. A yeah. lot of it is like, I just can't do this. Yeah. It was to me too narrow and constricted. And at the time that I was doing that, I again, didn't have the flexibility. It could be today. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to find myself in my seventies or eighties going to daily mass. <laughs> you know, I, I know that anyway, I can go off on a tangent there. Um, I got a spiritual director in oh when was that maybe about 15 years ago and i worked with her for three or four years and that was really rich what does that Um, mean a spiritual director well a spiritual director is a person they're often trained in spiritual direction to sit with you somewhat as a coach does and 
support you in knowing, discerning your spiritual path, support you in unpacking, improving, developing your relationship with God, finding out what you're up to, resolving spiritual questions or conflicts. And I started because I was, um, I tried centering prayer, uh, which is a Christian form of profound meditation and contemplation. And I was having, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, Leslie, but it was in the context of centering prayer. Uh, I think it was that I was feeling a lot of pain and conflict around the church, mm. around my Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And I found a Catholic spiritual director, as it happened, who, as it happened, supported me entirely in saying, okay, I don't have to do that. But I was, I was having some disturbing religious-themed dreams, and uh, it just made sense to me to get some support. Yeah, I, I'm curious as to what, because it sounds like you're deeply connected to God. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like you have actively fed that part of your life and yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what does it look like today? Well, today, so I would say that Catholicism pretty much encodes the religious dimension of my spiritual experience, mm. by which I mean the organized or institutional or formalized uh, theologies, worship, rituals, activities. And they remain really, uh, it's like my first language. Catholicism was my first spiritual language. Mm. And so I continue to often think and feel and express myself in terms of that language. And it's very rich. But I now see it as a language, not a truth. As like a tool? Sort of a tool, but it's more a, a, a vector, a channel, uh, an expression. It's like in the infinite movie that is the human relationship with God, Catholicism is one genre. Yeah. And over the last, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years, my sense of what God is. This is a little girl. It was very much about the guy with the white beard. Mm -hmm. And I very much didn't want him mad at me. And as I grew, I outgrew that. And God became more of a, still a personal, but a less... Uh, human form unless a cranky old man being and became a kind of god had a personality for me up until about 20 years ago i would say so it was not quite the old man personality but still had a persona and now i don't feel i don't experience god primarily through the lens of a persona god's everything god's uh in terms of a uh, spiritual understanding that I've gotten into over the last five or six years, another word for God is mind. I'm, that word itself doesn't do much for me, but God is the infinite life force and intelligent energy behind life. God is all of it. I am quite content to not really know what the fuck that means. <laughs> because I finally got to where, okay, we don't know. 
I'm, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm willing to experience God in my own image because that's what I got to work with. Mm-hmm. And I, I own my projections. And I'm quite clear that that's not God. Yeah. And that's really important to me. I really appreciate it because it mirrors my version, right? So I didn't have the training that you mm-hmm. had growing up. Um, and so when I started to enter into this dialogue in my own self and the seeking, you know, I needed, because I didn't know what we were talking about, I needed something, a container, yes. a name, yeah. a label. And, and very much the first 10 years of this path wanted labels, wanted to point, wanted, needed something. And now my experience is any label I have is made of me, Right. Exactly. And is it is more it's the labels I put on it, the titles I put on it, the descriptions I I play with lightly because it feels you know the like I'm point you know it's all about that's all about me unless like the projection, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. and it is I'm comfortable with not knowing. Yeah. I, and you know go ahead. I mean I wish that I had more language, right? Like yeah. in this conversation with you, I wish that there was something richer and really to to explain this experience that I have mm-hmm. and the relationship that I have. And because I've been doing it for so long and obviously you've been it, it I hold it lightly now. It's like a yeah. giggle when I get really like, oh God is da 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 Right. Right. And what just occurred to me is I don't dismiss the God that I project either. Because that personal God, that that personal and projected image of God that does have some form of personality is an opportunity for me to engage with a, a face of God, an aspect of God, and be educated by my engagement with that. So when I engaged with an angry aspect of God, that did something for me. When I engage with God is love, that does something for me. When I engage with God is judge, that does something for me. None of those things are God, but I think it's not meaningless or worthless to have those experiences because there's in relationship as human beings, we, our hearts and minds get educated through relationship. So to put a temporarily smaller form on God's not a bad thing. It just is really useful to me to return to the undifferentiated totality of it. Yeah, it's more um, this and. Yes, exactly. And I, I agree. Like it, it was, a, it's extremely useful for me to have this argument with God about my son, right? That's yes. Extremely helpful for me. Yeah. To hold that space and to, and, and, my God's big enough to handle my anger. Right? No kidding. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I, I am human and I need that experience. And so, yeah, I really appreciate that. It's not to look down at that. Oh, in my beginnings, that was not helpful because I do go back there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that, I really, that those, those, that piece is very important. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. The only other piece, and, and I think you may have answered this, but the one of the pieces I'm curious about in these conversations is how did your spiritual life show up for you practically in your day-to-day? Yeah, massively. The, the three principles understanding that I mentioned uh, is an articulation of, of spiritual 
truth that uh, comes from a man named Sid Banks, who was a welder in British Columbia, a little island in British Columbia, had a ninth grade education. He, like Byron Katie and Eckhart Tolle, was not going around looking for enlightenment. And when I hear their stories, I'm always like, God damn it. I've been in the front seat of the classroom raising my hand for 64 years. <laughs> Throw me a bone. But anyway, Sid's having a random... That the Indigo's uh, yeah. interview where when she was telling me about her enlightened experience, I thought, oh, how do I get that? How do I yeah. do that? You know, in the second her ego did that, it got exactly. destroyed. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I loved that. So... Um, Sid had this experience, and he talked for a long time when he taught out of it. Um, he talked in terms of the divine and uh, more or less traditional God imagery. And over the course of a few years, he actually settled on non-religious labels for what he had experienced. And he had a couple of key insights. One is that all of life arises through an interplay of what he calls these three principles of mind, which I can call God, consciousness, the capacity to have an experience, the awareness, the container in which our personal experiences and universal experience arise, and thought as a principle, which is not just the contents of our thinking, but that capacity to cross the border from formless, infinite energy into form, the form of a thought, the form of a computer, the form of a glass. Um, thought gives rise to our experience. And when I first came across this, one of the other things I've done along the way is I trained as a certified facilitator of the work of Byron Katie. Over the last probably 15 years, I've been edging more and more into kind of non-dual traditions and inquiry-based traditions. And at first, when I came across Sid, I wasn't that impressed. I mean, it didn't look wrong to me. It just didn't impress me that it was right. Yeah. Didn't see anything new. And as I kept looking, I saw that for my money, he articulates these same spiritual principles that the, the Vedas, the sutras, the... Uh, Buddhist scriptures, the Christian scriptures, the Islamic, the Sufi scriptures have all pointed to, and he does it in a uniquely simple contemporary way mm. That's that doesn't bring the projections of all those religious traditions with it. And the, as a consequence, let me see, I'm trying to think of how to make this brief, because this is an answer to your question, how does it show up in my daily life? As I looked at what Sid saw, one of the realizations I had was that I know what I know mm. when I know it, that there's a quality of knowing or of recognition that is impersonal, and that when I'm experiencing that sense of recognition that isn't limited by the personal flavor of Molly, I can take that to the bank. And that's kind of my, my navigational aid. That's my hotter, that's what tells me if I'm getting warmer or cooler with a decision or a way of thinking or a way of running my business is that 
I've, I've come to see that there's a deeper feeling. The language is so imprecise, and for that I apologize, but it's what we got. Is what Sid would call a deeper feeling. And when we find that deeper feeling, he said, trust that, look for that, mm. recognize that, rely on that. And I was watching one of several Sid videos and going, okay, I don't quite get this guy. I certainly don't see what he's saying that's new. And by the way, he's pretty freaking obscure. And I heard him say, if you recognize that feeling and you've got it, throw this tape out, out the car window. And somehow that got in. It's not what he said, but it's what I heard. Mm -hmm. I heard, you know what you know when you know it. Full stop. It's like, stop looking for more there. Stand there. And the, a phrase from 12 Steps comes to me, more will be revealed. But more is not revealed by you leaving that place of recognition of knowing and looking for more. It's by standing in that place of recognition. This is Molly's version, not Sid's version. Yeah, so let me see if I can repeat what I heard you say, which is... You know, I remember in the beginning of this path and people would sit and say, oh, I just listened to God's will and it's just God told me. And I would just think, are you kidding me? And there are so <laughs> many voices in my head and I, how do you know which one is God? And, yeah. and I have gone south with this idea, right? Of, yeah. God wants me to do this thing. And that oh, thing God. Not God. He's <laughs> absolutely not well and it's in the guise and, and, um, uh, and so for me, I need, I believe in always having a mentor, always having a sounding board, but there's also, and it's subtle. The voice is subtle. It's just, I know something. Yeah. You know, and I've talked about this a lot. People ask me like, well, what are you doing with this podcast and how are you going to market and what is it going to do for your brand and your life and all of these things? And I have no idea. Yes. And not knowing is a part of knowing. It's one yeah. of the most important pieces of knowing for me. Do I know that I need to do it? Yes. Yeah. For the yeah. minimum of myself. Like, yes, yeah. there's some fantasy in the back of my head that I'm going to become super famous and, you know, whatever. And, but in general, it's just because this conversation with you, with every single person I've talked to, has filled me up in a way that very few things do. Yep, exactly. And so stop, what I heard you say is that stop seeking outside of yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you've learned that subtlety of, I know this, not like, I know I want more stuff, I want more stuff, right? But yeah. if you go, I want to do what she did, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Which is a different energy, right? It's it a, is a different energy. This is a, you know, I can get fearful about Luke, right? I can really go there about my son. And yet, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm here and centered, mm -hmm. he's fine. Yeah. He's beautiful. He's okay. He's human. He's got a higher power that's doing work. And yet I still have a humanity side where it's like, exactly. what, about, what about? Exactly. Sid used to say life is a contact sport. Yeah. You um, know, you're going to get some on you. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> and when I first had my first couple of insights into the principles, one of which was that recognition of knowing what you know when you know it, and, and full stop. It doesn't mean I know it's right. It doesn't mean I know if it'll be right tomorrow. It's just in this moment, mm. my homing signals working. And the other insight is that 
every being is an expression of the infinite, intelligent, benevolent life force of the universe. And in that sense, cannot be flawed, broken, or wrong. Mm. That's not about my behaviors or choices. That's about my essence. And I have an apple tree outside my window, and that's my teacher there. I would never think of criticizing that apple tree for blossoming wrong. And those twin insights really knocked my socks off. And I can't remember where I was going to go from that. (laughs) The the practicality of it, right? Oh, yeah. So what I really know now is like the last four weeks on and off, I have been in a low um, mood, sometimes irritated, sometimes depressed, sometimes uh, anxious, a lot of second guessing, blah, blah, blah. And when I'm in that, it looks to me like for four weeks I've been low. When I'm not, like today I'm not, I see there have been moments in four weeks that I've been low. And when I'm low, that looks continuous. Yeah. So I've learned something about discerning the vibe that goes with (laughs) intelligent thought (laughs) or higher quality thought or clearer signals. And more and more, I, it comes natural to me to give more credit to the thinking that comes out of a, a more peaceful and a quiet place and less significance to the thinking that comes out of being stirred up. And I seem to be just as helpless as ever about whether or not I'm stirred up, but I don't have to run my life from there. And I'm far more comfortable. I've always had a pretty high tolerance for not knowing, in spite of being a know-it-all about stuff. (laughs) Had a pretty high tolerance for not knowing, and now that's been expanded. So while it's not comfortable, there are times when I really want to know more, where I think I need to know more, I recognize that a higher quality signal, or even a, a weak signal, is always better than listening to the noise. And I've got a better feel for discerning signal from noise. And the fact that I'm bringing in signal doesn't mean to me that I'm right. I have no idea what the consequences or the next step will be. I just trust this is the signal, so I'm going to put my little foot out. And then the next signal might be put your little hand out. (laughs) And I do the hokey pokey through life. Does it mean leave that foot out? I don't know. Right and wrong in that sense don't have meaning for me because they're always about a future that isn't happening. They're always about judgments that I'm in no position to make. Doesn't mean I don't consider them and feel them. I just don't recognize it as valid. So could you say the signal is intuition? Maybe. Um, Intuition, I think, can be um, some words like intuition, purpose, that get freighted with personal significance. And so I'm a little, I don't tend to use those words as much because I'm a little suspicious of that. And it's a, it could, it's a decent enough word. It points vaguely into the direction that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I just, my, for myself, I always want to hold my intuition very lightly because there's a way in which intuition has come to mean knowing and knowing extends into the future. Well, like, I don't know what this will be worth in five seconds. Right now it's golden. Yeah. 
yeah. and I'll throw it out there. And then maybe the next message I go was, no, not that one. <laughs> I mean, the thing that, the thing that's really interesting to me is what you describe is kind of simple in the description of what you're describing, but immensely hard in the action as a human being. It is. And th this is another thing I learned from Sid. I used to think that it was practice that m would make it easier. Mm -hmm. I don't actually buy that anymore. Okay. What makes it possible is not practice, it's insight. To the degree that I see that to say some, my choices are right is meaningless and you know, semantically not useful, yeah. I, just, I just don't go there. Yeah. I may still have thoughts and feelings of that, but they don't look valid or useful to me. And the insight into, it's like it doesn't take effort to move your hand off a hot stove. Yeah. And it doesn't take practice to move your hand off a hot stove. And as we have insights into our spiritual nature, it's patience, discernment, compassion, and a better signal to noise uh, understanding are side effects of the insight. And I have nothing against practice because I think practice also arises as somebody's insight. It's just like Buddha had an insight to sit under the Bodhi tree. That was perfectly custom designed by mind for him in that moment. Mm -hmm. To turn it into a prescription for centuries, not so much. I'd rather go to the source and say, okay, what should I do now? But I don't have to, that's not that complicated. If I have a thought to go for a walk or to, to occasionally it'll occur to me to sit on a meditation cushion or to sing or to dance or to do a movement practice, all of those are available, but I don't practice those as prescriptions anymore. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I really trust. And that's another big way the changes happen. I'm just, I'm not in charge of managing how Molly turns out anymore. Mm. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> I'm available. Most days I'm available. Some days I'm not that available. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's a really beautiful way of describing it. Yeah. And what just occurred to me in this moment, the insight I just had is that's my best shot at recovering that five-year-old girl's relationship with God. Mm. Not trying to manage it. Yeah, because she didn't. Yeah, she didn't. Yeah. The closest I've ever felt was utterly without my intention or effort. Yeah. And this reminds me again of Indigo's interview. You become self-conscious about it. How can I use it over here? Maybe make it a little more durable. Um, well, thank you so much for having this discussion with me today and telling me about your experience. And I really appreciate that. And um, uh, we are going to have a link to Stu. What was his name? I'm bad at names. Sid Banks. Sid Banks, yes. Yes. As well as to Molly, if anyone feels called to find out more about you and more about your teachers and, and all of those things, they'll be in the liner notes at coachlesley.com forward slash, thank you, forward slash 
um, podcast and, uh, Hey, SidBanks.com. Pretty, pretty, pretty yeah. There's a SydneyBanks.com too, but it's not, it's the SidBanks.com that you want. There you go. <laughs> and, um, and I just really appreciate your honest and openness to have this conversation with me today. Thank you. I really, I've been looking forward to it because I wanted to find out what the hell I was going to say. <laughs> yes. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Thank you, Leslie. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode of Spirituality Out Loud. Be sure to rate us, review us, and like us on Facebook and share us with your friends.